Let's bow our heads for a word of prayer. Gracious Father in heaven, we pray that you will continue to be with us for these next few moments. We commit our minds into your hands. Help us to focus on what you might have to say to each of us. Still the thoughts of our, of our mind, still the calendars of the week, and help us to be attentive for these next few moments. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. It's one thing to believe in grace as a theological construct. It's another thing to live grace as a daily reality. If you were to ask Cheryl Love, she would tell you that grace can be difficult to live out when you have been hurt, when you have been let down. Cheryl Love was sitting in her kitchen on a very ordinary morning, drinking some tea, getting ready for another day of work when there was a knock at the door. Cheryl got up, went to the door and was greeted by the NYPD. She opened the door and they streamed into her house, some wearing NYPD jackets, others wearing FBI jackets and they made a beeline for her husband, Bobby Love. They surrounded him and they started to pepper him with questions and Cheryl was wondering what was going on and she kept calling to her husband, Bobby, Bobby, what is going on? He didn't say anything. And then the police officers put him in handcuffs and walked him out of the house. And at that very moment, Cheryl's entire life became undone. And through a series of emotionally raw and laborious conversations, she found out that Bobby Love, her husband, did not exist. She found out that his name was actually Walter Miller, and he had been on the run for 40 years. He had committed a crime as a teenager and had gone to prison And he had tried to be a model prisoner, but a guard had decided to make Walter's life difficult. And so he decided one day to make a break for it. And he ran when they went to do rubbish duty by the side of the road, took his last hundred dollars and took a Greyhound bus to New York City, where he met Cheryl, his wife. They had four kids and they were married for 40 years. She had always realized something was not quite right in their marriage, that he always seemed tenuous, he always seemed to look uh, behind his back, he was never present, he was always distracted, but she could never have imagined in her wildest dreams it was because her husband Bobby Love was actually not Bobby Love, but Walter Miller. And so it stretched every fiber of her emotional being to stay present. Cheryl is quoted as saying, my whole world came crashing down. Bobby's arrest was all over the papers. It seemed like the whole city was laughing at me. I was so angry, but I never hated him. I wanted to comfort him. I wanted to hold his hand. And when she visited Bobby in prison, he lowered his shoulders and was racked with tears and looked at her and said, you're going to leave me, aren't you? And Cheryl looks at Bobby and says, Bobby Love, I married you for better or for worse, and right now this is the worst. 
And Cheryl got together her friends and her family and they wrote letters to the governor, to the mayor, to the president. They got all of the kids Bobby Love had worked with in basketball camps, all the people he had worked with at his church, every employer who had seen the new reformed Bobby Love. And she went before the parole board and pled her case. And the parole board looked at the facts, looked at his life, and sentenced him to a lenient sentence of just an additional year in prison. When he came out, she took Bobby, and they continued to work through the pain of a marriage that had been built on a foundation of lies. As people listened to this story and read this story on Humans of New York, There was heated debate. There were some who said that she should never have taken him back. There were others who were ready to uh, basically say she was a saint and had a heroic sense of love in being able to show such grace and such mercy for someone who had done so much wrong. Grace sounds good as a theology, but it's hard in real life. And grace, not just as a theological construct, but as a lived reality, comes through people. It comes through our lives. And it's difficult when we live in a country which is built on really meritocratic foundations where you do and then you are rewarded, where you are good and then you see the results. To then enter into a community where we have to grapple with the Bible speaking about grace. After all, when your two-year-old picks up their toy, um, you give them a reward. When your middle schooler focuses on studying and cuts down video games to just 30 minutes a night and they bring home better results, you give them the bike they want. When your high schooler has been able to persevere, do well, get into the college that they want, you might give them a used car. You work, and then you are rewarded. You behave, and then you are gifted. And yet, grace does not do that. And as we continue with this series together, talking about what it looks like to be in community, we build upon what we did last week, if you were here, when we're in Acts chapter 2, looking at this new community at the moment of birth, at the day of Pentecost, when this community of people who have no business being together, a community of people who are sociologically different, who are economically different, who are ethnically different, who have various differences coming together under the banner of the risen Christ to start a new community. And if you've grown up and you've read the Bible, you will know the book of Acts is not just halcyon with pretty communities that have no problems. Problems arise because community is me and community is you. And we are not perfect. And it's difficult. And today we're going to be looking at the book of Galatians where Paul, in one of his earliest epistles, writes to one of the new communities which starts in Galatia and he starts to speak about what it looks like to be a community of grace as opposed to be a community which is under the law or the old covenant or the old ways. Paul says this in Galatians chapter 1, and you can turn there with me, you can flip open your phone and get there on your Bible app, Galatians chapter 1, verse 6 and 7. Paul says, I marvel 
that you are so soon removed from him who called you into the gospel, who called you into the grace of Christ onto another gospel, which is not another, but there be some that trouble you and would pervert the gospel of Christ. So Paul is talking about a group of people who are trying to pervert the gospel of Jesus, the gospel of grace, and push the community towards something other than the gospel of grace. When you read Galatians, you find that this group is given the name the Judaizers. They are people saying that if you are going to be part of this new community of Jesus, you still need to keep some of the ceremonial laws and the ceremonial requirements from Moses. You can be part of us, but there are still things that you have to do before you can truly be accepted. And so their teaching essentially says, yes, yes, there's Jesus, Yes, there's grace. Yes, there's salvation in Jesus, but you need to do additional things and behave in additional ways before we can invite you into our community. And Paul says these false teachers are trying to ruin the freedom of the Galatians. When we go to Acts chapter 15, the Jerusalem council, we have details filled in of what is going on. And Acts 15, one tells us pretty explicitly what these Judaizers were trying to force the Gentiles to do. It says in Acts 15 verse 1, unless you are circumcised according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. That's really what it's saying. And so in Galatians chapter 2 verse 11, Paul tells us that this group of people who are causing so many problems cause him to take drastic action. Let's read Galatians chapter 2 verse 11. And this is Paul's writing. He says, now when Peter had come to Antioch, I withstood him to his face because he was to be blamed. For before certain men came from James, he would eat with the Gentiles. But when they came, he withdrew himself and separated himself, fearing those who were of the circumcision. And so here we have Peter, the same Peter who was with Jesus, the same Peter who put his hands through the nail-scarred hands of the risen Christ, the same Peter who had tasted the grace of Jesus in that he denied him three times and Jesus said there is still a place for him. The same Peter who preaches on the day of Pentecost and 3,000 people are Uh, given this beautiful picture of the inauguration of the new covenant, of the new kingdom of grace, this same Peter is now at the stage in his life where he has done so wrong that Paul has to come and resist him to his face. There's texts that I read that often make me think, I'm sure someone snuck that in. You know, like he resisted him to his face. For some reason, it always gives me this picture like that Paul comes and he gives him a Euro step and like dunks on his face. It's just such a visceral picture to me. I can never get that basketball image out when I read this text. He opposes him to his face. And why is he opposing Peter? Why is Paul so upset with him? He's upset with him because Peter has been eating with the Gentiles He has been having supper at their house on Fridays. 
He has been having barbecues with them. And then certain men come from James and they say, Peter, you cannot be with those people. You cannot live with those people. They are not behaving in the right way. Peter, you cannot um, have your name associated with those people. They are not true believers. And then all of a sudden, Peter goes from turning up on Friday, having supper, to, you know, maybe coming once a month. And then after a month, Peter, all of a sudden, when he gets text messages like, hey, Peter, having supper again, going to have haystacks. We're going to have fresh avocado. It's going to be great. Then Peter would respond, but he would give them that triple dot, leave them on red, never send a message, and then slowly pull away. And they felt Peter disconnecting from their community, and he withdrew from these people because of others who had told him he should not associate with him. And this my friends, tells us about the difficulty of living a life in community which is under grace rather than under behavior. Because this new community of people has gone from being devoted to one another in fellowship, working hard to have grace with each other, to now being separated by fear. And as Rachel was speaking with Pastor Troy, it just hit me that the difficulty of grace is that grace always has to come through people. Grace comes through people. If you see someone on the street and you talk to them about grace, you speak to them about the events of the cross, you talk about the doors that it opens in our relationship with Jesus, that's all well and good. But a theological uh, construct does not do much for someone who doesn't believe in it. A theological construct doesn't do much for people who are in pain, who feel shamed, who feel excluded, who feel like they are on the margins. Grace, like Cheryl loves grace toward her husband, Bobby, has to come through flesh and blood. And that's where it's difficult. And so when Peter pulls himself back from these Gentiles that he's been eating with, he shuts the portal of God's grace in their life. He tells them that you cannot be accepted. His behavior becomes a rebuke of their person. And this is why grace is so difficult. The theory is easier to accept than the reality is to live. And when we bump up against situations in our community that cause us discomfort, it's easy to take the road of judgment rather than it is of grace. And in Galatians chapter 2, there are real people who suffer when Peter disconnects himself from them because of behavior that he thought was wrong. They had left societal positions. They had left clubs, polished reputations. They had left everything to become Christians, and now they were being shunned. And it's no wonder then that in Galatians chapter 2, verse 20, Paul says this, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live with Christ, 
but Christ who lives in me and the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And then in verse 21, I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. Paul is saying, Peter, remember, in this new community built not on behavior, but built on grace, If we move away from grace and we start to judge our relationships with each other based on behavior, then we have nullified what Jesus has done. Or I would put it another way for us, sitting here today and perhaps um, not particularly interested in Pauline theology in Galatians, that you, my friends, are the portals of grace that each of us are able to Uh, to experience God's grace from above from. We cannot just believe it or argue it. We must live it. We must know that grace comes into our communities through our lives. And to be in loving biblical community, we have to be people whose hearts have been captured by the grace of God. We have to be people who love each other despite our messy lives, people who stay connected to each other through our struggles, always holding out the hope of redemption. We have to be people when our relationships are broken and fractured, are pushed by grace to connect and not to give up, to extend the invitation to people that are far and distant from us, to work through misunderstandings with sensitivity and with transparency. We have to be a community of grace where we don't have these hard edges and a dogmatism or self-righteous judgment, but we are people who have tender hearts, who keep doors open that others have shut. We have to be people who are transformed by grace and have a special place in our heart for those on the margins, in the shadows, those who are the least, the last, and the lost. If we are a community of grace, then these people must be on our minds. These people must be on our prayer list. These people must make themselves known on our bank accounts. Grace flows from heaven, but it's shown through our lives. And I remember... Uh, looking and thinking about examples of grace that I have seen um, and seeing how uh, people are able to be conduits of grace to people who feel like grace should not be offered and extended to them. A few years ago, I remember being in a prayer meeting, and in that prayer meeting, we had um, a gentleman who was just uh, an earnest, earnest man, and he would always pray for his friend. We'll call his friend Bob. And he would always pray for Bob. He said, hey, you know, my friend Bob is, is having a hard time. Um, let's pray for Bob. So we'd pray for Bob. Then the next week he'd come and say, you know, Bob is still having a hard time. I was able to talk to him for a couple of minutes on the phone this week, but he's still not doing well. Let's pray for Bob. So we pray for Bob. The next week he comes. Oh, let's pray for my friend Bob. Um, he's back in the VA. He's, he's, in, he's in the hospital and he's not doing well. Um, let's pray for Bob. Then he'll come the next week. You know, my friend Bob, he used to come to this church a few years ago, but he had some difficulties and he's not coming anymore. Let's pray for Bob. On and on it went. And you know, sometimes you feel like you're in the moment with someone. You're just trying your best to, just to, just to look like you, you feel like there's hope. But I didn't think there was any hope for Bob. We keep praying for Bob. 
Now Bob's in hospital, now Bob's not doing well. What's the point? And I'm thinking, Bob is not going to come. And then one day we get to church. This gentleman comes, he finds me, he goes, Pastor, Bob's here. I'm like, really? He goes, yes, he's here. He comes, he introduced me to Bob. I look up at Bob, he's a hulking man. He's about 6'5", broad shoulders, uh, weather-beaten. Looks like life has been difficult for him. And then the next Wednesday, Bob turns up a prayer meeting, and he sits, and we share how we've seen God working in our life, and Bob says nothing. Next week, he says nothing. We ask for songs. What would you like to sing? People pick hymns. Bob picks his hymn. He sings it. The next week, we come together, pick a hymn. He picks the same hymn. Every single week, I kid you not, you know, sometimes you think preachers take license with the truth. This is true. (laughs) For three months at prayer meeting, he turns up, picks the same song every single time. And now I'm going to ask you, we, we didn't have much success in the first service. Let's see if there are bona fide Adventists in this service. So without looking at your hymnal, the hymn that he picked every single time was hymn two. Nine four. Who knows what that hymn is? Two nine four. Hmm. I hear some grumbling. I hear some mumbling. Two nine four. Any takers? Power in the blood. That's the song he picks. It's a good song, but after three months, it tests the patience of even the saints, and all of us would know it was coming. And then one day, as we're going along and we're asking, how has God been faithful in your life? How have you seen God at work in your life? Bob opens his mouth and he begins to speak. And he says, well, I'm grateful that I'm alive and I'm here. When I was a child, my parents weren't very nice to me. They would beat me with a belt. They wouldn't give me food. They would burn me with cigarettes. And so when I grew up, I wasn't very happy. Now at this point, all of us have our eyes wide open. He has said nothing for months. And this is the first thing he says. He continues. When I left high school, then I joined the army went to Vietnam. It wasn't good. One time, my whole platoon was killed in an ambush, and I had to escape on the Saigon and floated for a a day and a half until I got back to safe territory. And that's hard, because I can't sleep that well at night. Now our eyes, as big as they were, are even bigger, and nobody is breathing as we listen to this story. And he said, and I'm so grateful, and he mentions his friend's name, who would just keep on reaching out to me even when I hit rock bottom. He goes, I drink too much. And then he raises his hand, which looks more like a claw, a huge hand, with a piece of a finger which is no longer there. And he says, this happened because one day I had been drinking and drank way too much, and I was in a 
accident and I woke up and I, I was in a gutter and, and, and this happened. And so I'm just grateful, he's, he says, for the grace of God. So we sit there absolutely shocked. Shocked. And I sit there rebuked because here I am wondering, why does this man every single week want to sing hymn 294? Why does he want to sing that there is power in the blood? And now he tells that story. And I think to myself, wow, there really is power in the blood. And I can never sing 294 again without thinking about this man. And it's life. It's messy because he didn't all of a sudden turn into this paragon of virtue who came. He still had difficulties. We still had to be with him. We still had to go and sometimes bail him out. We still had to take phone calls when he was doing things in his life that he knew he should not have been. But he knew that our community was a community of grace. It was a community where he did not have to be cleaned up before he could be accepted and be one of us. He knew it was a community where when he came, we would pray for him. He knew it was a community when he was at his lowest moment, we would be there for him. And of course, you know, grace we know is not cheap. It's costly. It costs the life of the Son of God. And Dietrich Bonhoeffer speaks about this idea of cheap grace. No, no, no. We know grace wants to move us from where we are to be in a better place, to be more like Jesus, to be freed from the things which grind us down. He didn't want to be there. But what he needed in those moments was a community that would love that would welcome, that would accept him where he was without pushing him to be something else. And when I think about being in a community of grace, I think about the difficulty of doing it. If we are in places that are performance-oriented, I think about the unique struggle that we have here because as much as we have a gracious community, You have to be gracious when you live with people for 20, 30, 40 years. You know, when you live in a city, you can be there for four or five years, then you take off, you leave, you go somewhere else. When you live in a place like this, you need to figure out grace. You went to school with each other. You graduated together in the class of 76. Then you went to Loma Linda, you came back. Then you had a practice together. And now you've been in town you sat on committees together in the, uh, in the university. You sat on committees together in Sunbridge at the church board. You've not always seen eye to eye. You have had things happen. So you have to figure it out if you're going to be together and if we're going to be in a community of grace. And it's not easy. And yet, grace calls us to affirm that all of us no matter how struggling, no matter how broken, no matter how doubting we are, are all children of God. And I want to imagine for a moment a church where we might be a place of grace, a church where you can sit in church and, and perhaps you have the young freshman who is, who is coming to church, who has dragged themselves to church, 
you know, the young freshman who struggles sometimes with porn and, and, and goes to it because he's not able to find refuge in God and who can come knowing that. If he needed someone to say, listen, I am really struggling, he could find willing ears and open hearts here, not judgment and condemnation. That we might have a church where love and support is given to the young mother who sometimes has panic attacks because being a mother is too much and she struggles to believe in the care of her heavenly father and just needs help and not judgment from our community. A church who doesn't abandon the busy, taxed executive who sometimes loses their temper because they struggle to believe that God is in control. A community of grace. A church that sits with those who experience bouts of depression and and who doubt even the reality of God's existence. I want to be part of a place and a community where we accept one another and we celebrate God's grace towards each other. And we remind each each other of the truth that each of us needs to keep going. A community of grace, a community of hope, a community of change. And to do that means we have to value people over perfection. We have to value people over performance. We have to value people over everything. And that is difficult. And yet, when I go to Galatians chapter 2, beyond all of the theological questions and wrangling that happens, I just think about those people who Peter cut himself off from because they were not behaving or doing what others told them he needed to do. And I wonder this morning how many of us have people in our lives for whom we are the repository of God's grace. We are the portal for them to see God's grace, not just hear about it as theory, but to experience it as reality. And I wonder how many of us are perhaps in the position of Peter, where we have cut ourselves off from people because of behavior that we have not liked. And this is not about enabling toxic behavior. This is not about um, unconsequential actions. This is something different. Those things have their place. But we're talking about being the portals of grace that we speak about and being a community of grace together. When I came here, one of the things I heard often was, you know, there are, not only are there the most Adventists per capita in this small place, probably in America, per capita, but there are also many people who are in the community who used to come, who used to be part of our number. And research shows over and over again that the people who used to be often don't stop coming because they had a big blow-up because they believed different to you about Daniel 11, 40 to 45, about who the king of the north and the king of the south are. It's not why they're not here. But often they are not here because they have experienced graceless community, because they have been hurt, because they have not been um, shown the grace that was purchased at a high price by Christ amongst our number. And for those who live 
with that person who doesn't come, who sees them at the Rotary Club, for those who bump into them when you go shopping and know that you don't see them here anymore. I wonder if God is calling you this morning to be a bridge builder and a person of grace to that person, to make an invitation, to be willing to work hard so that we can be a community where we are run and powered by grace. And again, like I said, this is not easy. It's messy. It's hard. It goes against what we have grown up with. But if we are going to be a community that comes together different though we are under the banner of the risen Christ, we must also be a community that comes together under grace and that lives grace for those who are in need of it. So this morning, I want to pray for the person that immediately popped into your mind who is not here because they did not receive grace when they needed to. I want to pray for the person that you immediately thought of who you need to extend grace to and who the Holy Spirit has been tapping on your heart to say, you are the person through whom my grace is going to flow. I need you to be in contact with that person. And I'm going to invite us to just bow our heads and to close our eyes. And and as we do so, if you know that there is a person that you can be a, a portal of grace to, but you don't have it in you, but you want prayer this morning to be able to do it, I'm going to invite you just to put your hands up as our eyes are closed, our heads are bowed, and I want to pray for you in a special way. Some of you, they live in your house. Some of you, they were former colleagues. But if we're going to be a community of grace, it cannot just be theory. We are the ones who have to live that grace out. Gracious Father in heaven, thank you for the grace purchased for each of us that we are not given what we deserve, but we are given freedom through Christ. This morning, this afternoon, I pray for those who put their hands up, for those who were unable to put their hands up, who are thinking about the people in their life that they cut off from grace and who are now convicted that they need to go and be a person of peace, a person of grace in their lives. Lord, I'm sure every single person in this place has experienced moments of grace, but it's so hard to give it back. I pray that this community, which is already gracious and loving and kind, will be more gracious, more loving, and more kind. I pray that people will feel the difference in the week to come as difficult conversations happen around tables, as hard conversations happen over the phone, as difficult emails are sent. Help us to be people of grace, reflecting the liberal grace that you gave to us, is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.